Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Arvind Mander, author of Sikh Philosophy, Exploring Gourmet Concepts in a Decolonizing World, published in 2022 by Bloomsbury Academic Philosophy. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy, Arvind. Thank you. Great to be here. Great. Well, let's dive in. Your book is an introduction to Sikh philosophy. And listeners may be familiar with what's often called Sikhism and conceive of it as a religion and and not a philosophy. But your book uh, not only complicates these concepts and categories, but it also presents uh, Sikh ideas as philosophical. So for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with uh, Sikh philosophy, can you start by introducing some of the main reasons that you think philosophy is a discipline, ought to be interested in it? Uh, maybe you could talk about some of its main commitments, some of the concepts it grapples with. Just a big picture of intro for us. Yeah, sure. Um, so Sikhism was uh, constructed uh, of, in the 19th century uh, through the 20th century primarily as a religion. So people know it mostly as kind of one of the five main world religions. Um, much less is known about its kind of philosophical impulse. Um, but those impulses are definitely there in the primary sources. And so um, there is a, an additional literature uh, along with the, uh, what might, one might call the construction of religion literature, the theological literature, which is essentially philosophical. Um, and it comes from the emphasis in Sikh life, uh, um, on the notion of vijar, which essentially means to ponder, to reflect. Um, and the Sikh teachings themselves um, inspire philosophical thinking, even if they are not what we might regard uh, as, as philosophical in, in the kind of formal sense, in the sense that we understand uh, the discipline. Um, but you can pull out just about everything that is covered in most uh philosophy courses it has a vision of life 
it speaks to the nature of reality. It speaks definitely to the nature of the self. Um, there is an implicit theory of knowledge there, if not a formal one. Um, you have to look for it, um, and there is a way of getting to it. One might argue that there is a sick logic. Uh, in fact, the very word for the teachings of the Sikh Gurus um, is Gurmat, which is one of the, it's in the subtitle of the book, and it literally means the teaching or the logic of the Guru. It can also mean uh, Guru mind. Um, other, other, it has sort of a whole lot of other connotations as well. It, uh, it's very similar to uh, when we talk about Buddha nature, Buddha mind. Uh, so that's one way in which you might want to kind of think about the term Gurmat itself. And Gurmat is the axial term in the primary sources, in the six scriptures, and pretty much the term that um, defines the coherence and identity of the community, as well as its philosophical teachings. That's, that's the term that you keep coming back to, uh, essentially. And Gurmat, um, uh, you can argue has an ontology. It's, it, it is a logic in itself. Um, there is a, a very strong um, reflection on death, on the nature of time, uh, on, on ethics as well. But again, they're not written in or composed in a formally philosophical sense. They are These are poetic writings written to music. Um, which makes them interesting. They're, they're meant for uh, praxis, um, so they're very much uh, embedded into the Sikh way of life. Um, so there is a lot there for philosophy, and, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why a philosophical literature has developed, uh, certainly in the modern period, in the early 20th century. Um, and yeah, we can talk about that, definitely. Definitely, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. Let's take a step back, and I want to ask you, how did you come to be interested in Sikh philosophy and to write this particular book? That's a long question to answer. I have a long-winded answer to that, and I sh or I can give you a short one, basically. Whichever you want, uh, time. Okay. Um, so, uh, really, um, I, was, I was actually trained in the sciences, um, I, was, uh, I did my PhD in chemistry, and um, this was in the late 80s. Um, uh, at around that time, I was also witnessing um, a major conflict between Sikhs and the Indian state. And one thing led to another, and I became interested in sort of, uh, you know, Sikhs were kind of put on the map as a kind of a terrorist community at that time. and. I think anybody who was reflecting on the politics, etc., also had to think about um, the the kind of the nature of responses um, when people asked you certain questions of what do Sikhs believe, um, does it, what's its philosophy, etc. You had to come up with answers, and I couldn't come up with them um, when I went for interviews, for example, job interviews uh, in, in the sciences, etc. Um, so this led me to kind of do my own research. Um, one thing led to another. I eventually gave up my sort of uh, field in science and uh, took up philosophy um, in the early 90s. And I started looking at the Sikh texts in the primary sources in some, uh, in 
in some detail and very closely. And one of the things I, I realized that was that they were uh, the literature that had developed around Sikh philosophy in the 20th century uh, was essentially couched in uh, what you might call a nationalist idiom. Uh, so it had been constructed in a kind of nationalized um, schema. Um, and I, I couldn't relate to it. I, I had difficulties relating to it. So I was trying to understand uh, uh, Sikh identity, Sikh sovereignty in terms of, you know, these philosophical concepts of Gurmat. I um, was asking questions like, was it unique or was it just part of a sort of broader uh, Indic cultural frame? Um, you know, the tendency of these uh, literature, uh, the Sikh literature, to frame, you know, these concepts of government with ethno-nationalist schemas uh, just became problematic, especially when I started to do more archival research. Um, uh, but I did manage to sort of dig my way uh, around these, uh, these uh, modern literatures and I found that the tr uh, most of the nationalist schemes could be traced to intellectual encounters between Sikh elites uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and um, missionaries, Christian missionaries, um, Indologists, etc. So that got me interested uh, in looking at the framework within which um, Sikh philosophy had been created. Um, which is the modern sort of colonial period. Um, but at the same time, uh, I also found the nationalist schemas uh, problematic. Um, I found it disempowering um, in, in, in many ways. First of all, there was no real correspondence uh, to my own subjectivity. Um, I couldn't relate to them, um, especially as a, as a diasporic post-colonial uh, second generation Sikh, um, and secondly, they the nationalist schemas didn't correspond to the teachings of the Sikh gurus, or they didn't correspond um, easily. One had to make a kind of a, a leap, um, and so there was this kind of disjuncture between the primary sources and and the the, the sort of modernist literature, and. When you look really closely, you find that these are essentially identitarian schemas, which had been, you know, that this identity had been reimagined by writers in the colonial period, uh, primarily in response to uh, nationalism and especially the rise of Hindu nationalism um, in the 19th century. So Sikhs were in a kind of a political um, uh, conflict, if you like. Um, that emerged in the late 19th century, um, six Hindus, Muslims in, in, in North India. And it appears that some of the philosophical literature was couched as responses to that. They were couched as responses to the demand for a Sikh identity. So there is a close proximity uh, in the enunciation of these philosophical concepts, their, their articulation and the need for um, a kind of a strong communal identity at the time. And that, that was what I found jarring uh, in my period. So that's what kind of led me to it. Um, um, and I was trying to, I, I couldn't just do this work as a historian of ideas. Um, 
that was one aspect of my research but i wanted to actually apply these concepts to the present world to the current world to, to problems that six were facing but also to life in general um and in order to do that what i found is that i had to kind of construct uh, a plane of consciousness if you like that allowed these kind of new encounters to to take place uh, something very different to the nationalized schemas. Um, so it, it was a subjective, uh, very much a subjective project, but also had a kind of objective uh, aspect to it as well. Um, so essentially, yeah, I, I think that that's one of the reasons why I got into this this whole sort of area. Um, it was it's very personal, but it was also um, I, I, I was discovering um, uh, cross-cultural philosophy at the time. Um, it, it wasn't in the same form that we see it today. It's really made a resurgence um, in terms of world philosophies, but there were people writing in that sort of vein there. And I was fascinated. And um, the problem is I had, I, I was being trained in a philosophy department, um, but had no supervision for what was considered the specialist aspect. So they could uh, they could uh, work with me on sort of like Heidegger and, and Gadamer and, and whatever else I was doing in, in the, you know, the, the Western thought area. But with regard to Sikhism, um, I had to have external supervision at SOAS. So it was a kind of a joint project. And um, so yeah, that, that's where it goes back to. And the, the, what, the product that came out of it was um, a set of dissertations uh, called Thinking Between Cultures. And that kind of laid the basis for everything else that followed after that. Great. Well, let's then dive into this book. Um, as a start, again, this is for the new books in philosophy. So I don't want to assume that listeners have um, a lot of deep knowledge with uh with the Sikh philosophy Sikh philosophy like you have um so maybe just briefly can you lay out what the basic historical facts are that the listeners need to know to appreciate it so maybe you can say a little bit more about where it arose you mentioned nationalism you men mentioned Indic religions so geographically maybe also briefly just touch on its relationship to Islam and Hinduism just to set yeah. um I guess um and I think the book does kind of talk about that uh, at the beginning. It sort of sets out the historical context a little bit. Um, there's a cliche about Sikhism that it's it's kind of synthesis of Islam and 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 Hinduism, um, but it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, certainly, it was born. Um, the Sikh movement was born in the kind of um, the era of this. Uh, clash, if you like, this, this, uh, between uh, Islam and, and, and Hinduism more broadly. But if you look at the six sources, uh, you can find elements of um, Sufism. Um, in fact, uh, at least one of the contributors to the Sikh text, the primary six sources, was a Sufi himself, Baba Freed. Sheikh Freed, um, and there are Hindu writers as well. And then when you look at the themes, you can find themes that are in um, Buddhism as well. Uh, so the terminology is kind of like absorbed in, into into the primary texts. Um, um, so Sikhism really came about in the 
end of the 15th century, beginning of the 16th century. Um, uh, its founder is Guru Nanak, um, and it's part of a, a broad uh, tradition, if you like, of spiritual masters who are nominally known as the sons, basically people like Kabir, Namdev, uh, others, um, who were challenging both uh, the kind of orthodoxy of Islam and the orthodoxy of Hinduism at the time, especially Brahmanic Hinduism. And um, Sikhism is, can be regarded as a kind of more formal movement that developed with uh, a strong community and also a, uh, um, a very, um, um, looking for the right word here, um, substantial set of writings and compositions that we put together, which really give the movement its sort of sense of identity, um, theological, philosophical coherence um, more than anything else. Um, the movement developed over the next uh, four, 400 years. Um, there were nine gurus who succeeded Guru Nanak. Um, some of them um, wrote compositions or their own compositions. Um, the coherence and the authority of the movement is really around the name of Nanak himself. Um, so um, the others, uh, six other gurus contributed to the uh, to, to the Guru Granth Sahib. Um, after the, the death of the 10th Guru, um, Sikhism is kind of in the doldrums for a hundred years or so. It's kind of in a fight for survival. And then it re-emerges at the end of the um, 18th century, uh, creates its own sort of kingdom um, under Maharaja Ranjit Singh, which is around for about 40 or 50 years. Um, before the British then entered the scene. Um, this is in the 1840s, and the Anglo-Sikh Wars take place in 1849. And after that, you know, uh, Punjab is the last kingdom of India to be annexed. And uh, and then we're into the sort of modern period after that. Great. So the first chapter, like you, in the introduction too, you talk about the emergence of Sikh philosophy, but your first chapter of the seven is titled Emergence of Sikh Philosophy. And you talk about uh, this concept that you've mentioned earlier, Kurmat, uh, and how it's incorporated into what you characterize as an assemblage. Um, and this is borrowing language from Deleuze and, and others. So um, maybe what is an assemblage, first of all, and how does this uh, help us understand Gurmat, this concept that's so crucial to Sikh philosophy? Um, I use the word assemblage because the word Sikh philosophy itself is uh, a creation of the modern period. Um, philosophy is a Western term, a European term, Sikh is an Indic term. And yet, in the way that they came together through this encounter um, of ideas, um, catalyzed primarily uh, by colonial, Sikh colonial elites in dialogue with uh, missionaries, with, with Indologists, etc. Um, what we see emerging is uh, a reinterpretation of Gurmat. And that reinterpretation really brings together uh, the original ideas of them, the original concepts, but within a new, um, a new era, 
a new philosophical plane, if you like, which is essentially the, the plane of uh, the, the, the global West, if you like, which happens through uh, colonialism. And it's then, uh, so I call it an assemblage because, um, and, and yes, I, I, it, the term is coming from Deleuze and Guattari, um, essentially. It, it's meant to indicate that, not that it's a simple construction, of Asian and Western, but rather um, there is a kind of resonance between the two realms where Gurmat is transplanted into um, the Anglophone consciousness, if you like, and vice versa. There is a kind of a, a hybrid sort of uh, crossing that's going on. And that's, so assemblage is a term which basically allows you to see the um, the positive aspect of of this encounter uh, it's a I use it as a term of empowerment rather than disempowerment basically so it creates something new but within new uh, new milieu if you like and so what's what is it that is new? about it uh Kurumut in this context and why do you think this needs to be sort of empowering what what's going on in the background that might make us think that this this encounter is disempowering maybe if you can flesh that out a little bit yeah i can um so there were two forms in which that encounter took place um the first one, or actually they happened pretty much at the same time, but one aspect of it was the construction of Sikhism as a religion. And we're talking about essentially the same group of um, thinkers who mediated this uh, transition, the Singh Sabha um, um, uh, uh, movement, basically. Um, just trying to get back to your to your question here. Um, yeah, so maybe what's the what's the encounter? We can we can start there, yeah. and then we'll, um, so yeah. religion, I guess, is disempowering in the sense that um, it narrows the epistemic range, if you like, of the concept of Guru. Um, so everything is kind of filtered through, you know, this this kind of new schema. Um, where it answers to the question of God, God, self, the world, etc. It's almost a kind of a Kantian schema. And concepts are kind of filtered through um, a, a theological lens, uh, what you might call sort of, uh, you know, onto theology is put into place. It's essentially a kind of a secularization of, of Gurmat concepts. Um, and so that's one aspect. And Six needed to do that to be recognized by the British administration um, as a sort of, sort of separate religion in themselves. But at the same time, if you look at most of the Indological writings on Sikhism at the time, um, they were not seeing anything particularly philosophical. And if there was, what they tended to do was simply absorb it into other streams of thought, whether it was Hinduism or Sufism or whatever, and the idea coming through was that it, it doesn't really have any um, anything unique uh, to, to offer. It's just a blending of what was already there. And 
um, many of these colonial uh, elite thinkers, the Singh Sabha movement took offense at that. And um, they put a lot of other effort into um, creating commentaries on the primary sources, particularly on Sikh scripture. And those commentaries, those very systematic commentaries were written over a period of 40, 50 years, but they lay the basis for the modern interpretation. And what they did was they uh, brought out the concepts, the key concepts like Shabda, uh, Shabda Guru, Naam, Satguru, etc., and began to interpret them within a broadly Sikh context, but answering to um, a new kind of global plane of thought, if you like, um, in dialogue with um, you know Anglophone consciousness. Western philosophy, however you want to kind of uh, describe that. And that took time. Um, so these two strands are uh, sort of going together. So you have Gurmat being translated as religion, which is in a sense disempowering because it, it puts six into a kind of a, into a compartmentalization. It kind of pigeonholes them. Uh, but this other strand of literature that's developing um, is philosophical. It allows um, Gurmat ideas to connect to the wider world. And that's why I call it dis uh, empowering rather than disempowering. Um, it had its flaws. Um, even the philosophical literature uh, uh, through the creation of Sikh philosophy was still couched in a political theological idiom. So it was still in the service of uh, a kind of a nationalized schema at the time. So there, is, there, there are still problems with it. And this is what I had to kind of wrestle with. Um, but you can see that there is a project of emancipation going on there and that Sikh philosophy was kind of uh, really trying to put a sense of uniqueness into the whole sort of Sikh project. Let's turn to your second chapter then um, with its discussion of it's titled experience and there's a lot packed in there but you talk about experience you talk about shabda um you talk about the conception of the divine in Sikh philosophy uh, rather than try and summarize the chapter maybe you can just speak to the ways that different dualisms or, or categories are challenged in relationship to experience so for instance the divine being with and without qualities or personal versus impersonal and so on um, so sort of one way to frame the question is Sikh philosophy, a corrective to human experience, um, and dualisms sort of categories, do human beings come to experience the world differently through it? Maybe you can speak to that. Um, yeah, uh, what chapter two, uh, which is one on experience, which is one you're referring to, um, what that, what I do in that chapter is essentially go back and revisit the experience of uh, Guru Nanak, basically. Um, how Gurmat was essentially born as a, as a, as a kind of a, an experiential and uh, philosophical sort of project. Um, and that, I mean, that revisiting that, uh, it's, it's not directly there in the primary sources. It is there. Well, actually, it is. It's in the hagiographies uh, that were written about Runanic um, within the first hundred years or so. Um, what this literature does is really get to, uh, I, I think, 
um, frames the experience in a very interesting way. So um, you can see Nanak uh, very much connected to the world. So the experience that he has uh, around about the age of 30, 33, um, oh. essentially it, he's undergoing some kind of um, ego death, ego loss, etc. Um, and develops uh, a kind of a new way of thinking, a new way of, a new language, if you like. And that language essentially is, um, is what is called Shabda. Um, it's the development of a, of a, what you might call a language that is without traces of ego. Um, and it's that getting to that standpoint, um, its subjective aspect is that it creates a self that is both, um, I'm looking for the right words here, is both selfing and deselfing at the same time. So it's, it's kind of in a, a, a position where it's able to deconstruct itself and keep going. It's a mode of what, what you might call a self-differentiation. And along with that, uh, subjectivity, this kind of almost impossible subject, if you like, um, are these sort of concepts which are framed uh, non-dualistically uh, in non-oppositional terms. So it, essentially what, what he's also creating is a kind of a non-oppositional consciousness. Um, and from that, from the, from the uh, writings of Nanak, who actually also writes about this experience, um, puts it into um, in, in, into six scriptures as well. You can glean a kind of a logic, and that logic is gurmat. That that is where Sikh philosophy kind of gets all of its impetus from. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So for, um, for our listeners, what are some of the, the categories or sort of the talk about the divine with and without qualities, for instance, in, in his experience. Uh, and that's a concept that's in the background there in, um, in Hinduism. So if we're talking about differences and connections to the, the time period, this is a concept that's, that's present. What does he do with this, um, these, these concepts that is um, particularly uh, relevant for Sikh philosophy? Um. He's essentially reframing the idea of oneness um, without it referring to some kind of a divine entity that we might call God or something like that. Um, and the way he refers to it is constantly in terms of paradox. Um, so he uses the word nirgun, sargun, which is there in you'll find it in hindu philosophy as well uh, but he's using it somewhat differently um the two are equated 
um, they they sort of form a paradox. So you have you know a, a being and an absence of being that is at the same time, and that's not just um, projected onto a divine being, etc. But it's talking about self as well. So it's a way of talking about one's own psychic construction, if you like, as well as uh, the world in general. And what it does, it creates a, a, a way of relating to the world in a very sort of positive way. So this is at the same time both, and I think this gets picked up uh, later in the book, it's both a way of knowing and a way of being at the same time is, is part of the point here. Yes, and I've used the term sort of ontopistemology because the two are very difficult to kind of separate. Um, epistemology is, has kind of ontological foundations and uh, ontology is epistemological at the same time. Um, I, one of the, the, the key terms that I have used to kind of decipher this is the, the word for, uh, normally it's translated theologically as God, which is a gal. A gal literally means non-time, so it's a negation of time. Um, and I use that in relation to gal. So gal and a gal, uh, both in the Sikh texts, become a way of um, keeping together uh, the world, if you like, but going beyond it as well. It's the way of um, bringing together immanence and transcendence into a single formulation. And so that logic has to kind of come out of the, you have to keep these things together, you know, gala, gala, nirgun, sadgun. Um, it's a kind of a new non-dualism that's, uh, it, it has a specific vocabulary in, in Nanak's um, usage. And it kind of gives uh, the Sikh philosophy its own flavor, if you like. This, I think, maybe leads us to the next chapter on epistemology. And I'm going to ask you to help me with the pronunciation uh, of the Gyan, is it? Gyan, yes, that's very good. Okay. Uh, So it's epistemology or Gyan. I take it that's uh, cognate with Jnana in in Sanskrit, possibly. Uh, Yes, it is. Okay, so in that chapter, you're arguing, like we've hinted at, that Sikh philosophy correlates um, ontology and epistemology. So I, I think this is really crucial in the context of shabda, this term that's often characterized or translated as like speech or, or testimony. But shabda, it seems like in this context, as you're describing it, is not just some sort of uh, cognitive instrument for conveying propositional content, but as you're describing it, it's a way of kind of constituting an egoless uh, self. So you say in the book, Shabda is guru when it expresses nam. Um, so maybe can you unpack that a bit for us? Um, what, it, what is Shabda? Um, what is nam? Um, what is guru? How, how are these concepts interrelated? Yeah, that's the most difficult chapter in the entire book. Um, it's the one that I had most trouble kind of bringing together. Um, but essentially, Shabda um, uh, is no different from the, the Hindu context, basically, but it refers to vibration. Uh, it means sound, uh, consciousness, essentially, 
and also word as well. So it refers to language as well, all of these things. Um, so Shabd can be both ordinary language, but in the context in which Nanak is using it, it refers to uh, the language that is expressed after one goes through ego death or ego loss. So there is the sh ordinary language, which is Shabd, but then there is the, the Shabd as Guru, which becomes Nam as you go through ego death. And I've used diagrams to kind of um, explain this, um, uh, basically. So um, if you imagine um, the, you know, we, we sort of, uh, language works in a normal sort of propositional way uh, in our sort of daily lives, etc. Um, what somebody like Nanak is doing is through this kind of experience, is undergoing a kind of ego death through the word, essentially. He's taking, and to simplify it, what he's doing is uh, removing uh, authority from personal consciousness and um, essentially decentering personal consciousness um, through the agency of, of Shabda, through the agency of the word. So the word becomes the kind of the catalyst, if you like, that triggers this. And in doing that, it becomes um, eventually a new type of language emerges once Nanak's gone through that experience or anybody else who can go through that experience. Um, so it's, it's, the, it's the flowering of a different kind of language that has no ego traces, essentially. And it doesn't have to be just language. Shabd essentially also means or encompasses emotion, affect. Um, and if we think about what emerges from that state of consciousness, it's a kind of affective thought, a thought that is much more in tune with one's affect. And that's the point to which Nanak is taking um, this, um, this kind of ego death, essentially, which is not literally a, a death of the ego, but it's coming out and creating something new, a more creative kind of uh, thing. So think about Shabbat as a, as a catalyst for the creation of a new self, a movement from, and I'm going to use two other words now, which are very central to Gurmat, which is the movement from a manmuk state of consciousness, which is one's ordinary, everyday, uh, self-attached con uh, consciousness, where where it's essentially the ego that, that uh, has taken over and is driving everything to a state that uh, in Sikh philosophy is called Gurmuk. So there's a movement from Manmuk to Gurmuk, and that um, essentially takes place vis-a-vis -vis Shabbat. So Shabbat is, a, is the essential trigger for the reshaping, the transformation of consciousness. And the difference between Manmukh and Gurmukh is, is essentially that Gurmukh consciousness encompasses its other. So it's both self and other. It's I and not I. And uh, the two things are brought together. And one can think of it in terms of bringing reason and affect together. Um, so it becomes kind of, in terms of thought, it's affective thought. Um, one's actions are also sort of 
uh, attuned differently as well through this. So uh, Shabbat is, is a central term. It's a term of liberation. It's a term of taking us from one sense, taking us out of the field of consciousness in, and breaking out of that field of consciousness, breaking that essentially. And so, uh, and, and the term Gyan, which is uh, knowledge essentially or knowing, um, really starts in the in Zig philosophy once you've broken out of the field of consciousness. That's that's essentially when Gyan begins. Um, and I've, again, I've tried to sort of use diagrams to illustrate that. It's 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 uh, can be quite complex. But... Yep. Yeah, so there's quite a few of these in the in the book. There's quite a few uh, diagrams, and uh, those are those are helpful in each of the chapters. Uh, let's since we're talking about consciousness, the next chapter is titled consciousness, and I think this it's a natural transition here. Um, I want to ask you a question that you just you you open this chapter with a, vi- a little vignette or sort of comparison, I should say, uh, contrasting Guru Nanak and uh, European philosophers like like Descartes. Um, saying that the Guru Nanak, unlike them, uh, quote, does not or did not need to establish reality as a foundational principle. Um, and then after that, you, you go on to discuss his ontology. I kind of want to take a step back and talk a little bit about um, his methods. So the mention of Descartes might bring to mind like a, a certain kind of meditation, right, where you're, you have a solitary individual who's reflecting on past experiences, imagining possibilities, and kind of constructing some sort of argumentative structure. Um, how, how does Guru Nanak develop his ontology? Um, what's, what's his methodology or what is the methodology maybe of Sikh philosophy after him? Um, do you see any overlaps between the, the European approach of philosophers like Descartes um, and Guru Nanak? Um, just, just sort of an invitation to to explore those those connections. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I think the vignette at the beginning of that chapter is really to make the point and to underscore the point that reality in the Enlightenment context and in the way that Guru Nanak, the way that it comes out of Guru Nanak's writing, are completely counterpoised counterposed basically there 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 if you think about it um in terms of axes the reality axis and the illusion axis are completely opposite in in both of those cases um and i don't think you know uh, the sikh philosophy is particularly unique in that you could do the same with buddhism same with hinduism yeah, other philosophies as well and it's it's really to do with how they understand reality. Reality is begins when you break out of the circle of the self, the field of the self. Um, you break out um, of this tendency of the self to continue to make itself, which Nanak calls Hone or eye making. Um, and the way he, so there's no formal um, construction of ontology as such. Like I said, it's, it's, these are poetic texts, um, but I, I focused on that chapter on um, a really, really interesting hymn. It's a very long hymn uh, called the Rag Maru hymn. Um, Rag Maru is the, um, is the musical measure in which it's, it's composed. And when you read it, it's essentially 
uh, it, or, or certainly it begins talking about the creation of the world, the creation of the cosmos. So it sounds like a creation hymn, and it sounds like Nanak is basically telling us that the world evolved, uh, the cosmos evolved from um, the willing of this, uh, you know, the, the divine entity or whatever. And certainly in the modernist interpretations, most Sikh interpreters have thought of it as a kind of a creation hymn. But he does something very interesting there. Uh, right in the middle of the hymn, uh, he takes the creation uh, of the, the world of, of the cosmos and connects it directly to the individuation itself. So whatever is going on in the creation of the cosmos is also going on in the creation of the self. And he, he basically switches from cosmology to psychology. Um, and then you see this kind of switching in between, um, which is really, really interesting. So in short, um, it allows you to understand ontology. It basically shifts the question of ontology onto the realm of consciousness itself. And that's really what Nanak is talking about all the way through. So everything that you see in Gurmut, all of the key concepts are there in this particular helm. Uh, non-oppositionality, non-duality, um, the impossibility of separating materiality from immateriality. Um, and that's why I called it consciousness. I was originally going to call it the chapter ontology. and um, But I opted for consciousness because, you know, where does consciousness begin? In, in the field of the human sort of self or outside or where? And so in that sense, it, complete, it, it looks completely different, this terrain, from the way that um, Enlightenment philosophers have kind of talked about reality. Um, it, it just changes the, the the frameworks in which we understand everything. Yeah, and I want to pick up on something that we've you've alluded to a few times, but I think is important. Um, in the end of this chapter, you talk about this discipline of Nam Simran, and you also talk have talked about in our interview about the importance that the the these texts are in fact hymns. They're arranged um, musically, metrically. Uh, so it, there's a, an approach to um, sort of texts that's different here than maybe um, the, the sort of emphasis on kind of discursive uh, knowledge where it's something that you simply read. There's some sort of um, affective, performative elements going on here in these um, original texts. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on there? Yeah, that's actually one of the most interesting things about this. And it's, it's also where I think um, Sikh philosophy as a field meets its greatest challenge. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's also inspired by this as well. I so practically every page, every uh, um, part of the, of the Sikh text, the Guru Granth Sahib is uh, written according to it, it's composed according to meter and uh, rather um, so it, it, it's essentially composed according to 
certain emotions. Those emotions aren't set by any means, and they can be interpreted in different ways. But it it's a it's not even a text in the sense of you know reading. Um, people read it; they certainly do. It's it's read with great reverence. Um, it's memorized uh, part and memorize parts of it. You can memorize a lot of it. You can sing it according to rag. You can chant it. Um, parts of it are deeply um, amenable to to a certain kind of chanting. Um, all of it can be sung, which basically brings you back to this question of um, what is it trying to do? And I think uh, these are texts which are essentially working primarily at the level of consciousness, at the level of psyche, and they're, they're, these are ways in which it's, it makes it easier to come out of the rigid frame of consciousness that we've developed um, through, you know, acculturation, uh, society, etc., etc. Um, so it's, it's both an inspiration, it's, it's a help, I think, to philosophical thinking, if you allow affect and emotion to come into contact with reason. And I think that's what's going on there. That's what makes it really interesting. Uh, certainly when you translate it, um, I think it's helpful to actually know the the kind of musical measures, the, the meter, etc. You can't, you just cannot translate it uh, line by line or whatever. Well, you can, but you'd probably lose the uh, the sense of it as well. I don't know if that helps. It does. That's helpful. Thank you. Um, so l- let's talk to again thinking thinking here since this this is a philosophy podcast and um, we're talking about connections with um, with as you as you said sort of cross cultural and comparative philosophy. One of the themes that you pick up on in the the chapter on death, rebirth, and tra- transmigration is a theme that. Um, is really broadly part of philosophy from ancient times, right? That hu- humans are being prepared for death through philosophy and um, or considering its nature, things like that. And in in this chapter, you explain uh, why we shouldn't fear death, according to Guru Nanak. Um, and now, you know, so Socrates famously gives his arguments for why we shouldn't shouldn't fear death. We don't know what's going to happen uh, afterwards as part of it. But uh, Guru Nanak's account is is different, and this brings up this nature of time, which you alluded to before, uh, as well as consciousness. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about why is it that, according to him, we shouldn't fear death, or, or what should our attitude be towards death, rather, maybe? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so death is treated at three levels. Um, um, there is empirical death, um, and then there is what he calls deathless states, um, which he also calls the death of death or the overcoming of death, um, rather than what we would simply call immortality, you know, a state of permanence. So it's nothing to do with that. It's still within the realm of mortality. Um, I, I would describe, and, and then the third aspect is uh, rebirth, um, transmigration, uh, which is the, the term is Avagon uh, in, in the Sip text. Um, it's interesting, 
none of them have priority over the other. Uh, so empirical death is in uh, in consonance with the other kind of death, which is the death of the ego. And that's where Nanak really focuses. He's basically saying to lose fear of death, you have to expand your understanding of time, uh, pull yourself out of this Gal-centric uh, framework, this, this time-centered framework, which is governed by the, the self, uh, into uh, a deathless state, basically, which is how you kind of lose the fear of death. Um, so death is, it's a twofold event. It's, it's how I would describe it. It's, uh, there is death and there is uh, it, it, it double death, if you like. <laughs> um, and the, the two go completely together. One is um, uh, you can't understand one without the other. That brings us on to the question of rebirth. Uh, is that a real sort of phenomenon in, uh, is, 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 it, is it philosophically relevant even in, in Nanak's um, um, hymns, etc.? Um, when you look at it closely, he seems to be working within the framework of, you know, classical uh, Indian theories, but at the same time, there is no overt speculation on what happens after death. So we're still left with the twofold event of death. Um, so he's really preparing us, I think, for death in this life. So in essence, and I've, what I've done in the chapter is basically folded it back into the question of life. So at no point is death simply talked about on its own. It's always in relation to life. And so even this, uh, the death of death is the opening of life. And there is kind of verse after verse, which, which talks about that uh, in, in a really interesting way. Um, so you'll see a lot of resonances with, I think, other traditions there, particularly uh, in, in Indic uh, traditions. And um, as I'm finding with, uh, with outside of Indic traditions as well. Right, and, and this is a point you make in the penultimate chapter, self-realization, that this concept of, of liberation, uh, cognates of terms like moksha, release, something like that, uh, it doesn't neatly fit into sort of broadly Indian, Indic, or Western categories, despite this linguistic um, connection. So uh, in what way does this, uh, this concept of liberation not quite uh, neatly fit into these categories. Yeah, um, that's another thing. Um, when I looked carefully at the use of the word mukti, uh, which is the cognate of moksha, um, and jivan mukti, the one who has become liberated uh, in the stream of life, etc. Um, again, there's no. Um, it's not a liberation from world it's a liberation into the world it's a liberation into the world through the body and so the body is absolutely crucial here it's a, it's it's an embodied liberation which makes it really interesting and um i you know i i was having um 
qualms about interpreting it in in that way until I read the um, a chapter by Jod Singh by Jod Singh who was one of the um, sort of early writers of modern Sikh philosophy and it's he's somebody I've I've kind of critiqued before because you know kind of mediates this through mediates gurmukh concepts through onto theology etc very very kind of westernized idiom but his chapter on 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 death and avagon is is really fascinating and he himself um is is kind of working through um he's in dialogue with the the jain theories this sankhya theories etc of, of transmigration and karma etc um but he's reinterpreting the Gurmat idea of Avagon in relation to the body. And it could be argued that he was also reading somebody like William James at the time. Um, and you can certainly see kind of a little bit of influence there. But I, I think what's going on in the Sikh text is, is too strong to simply say that it's, it's a kind of a Jamesian or a, even a Bergsonian influence even though you know he was reading these guys at the time um but i think he does enough in that chapter to convince me that uh this is probably the best way to kind of interpret nanak's understanding of liberation um so there's no preoccupation with leaving the world detaching from the world etc it's very very much focused on one's own body mind complex and so just to repeat what I said, I think it's more of a liberation into world and into body. Yeah, that, I think that nicely segues into the last chapter, which is bioethics. And there are sort of certainly embodied concerns in this chapter that you take up. Uh, and it, it's a wide ranging chapter, everything from reproductive ethics to environmental concerns and euthanasia, medical treatments, things like this. Um, and one of the things that you're grappling with, if I understand your chapter correctly, is you're moving from sort of certain cultural particularities from, for instance, the colonial period when we have prohibitions against haircutting originating. Um, and, and you're trying to think about what a Sikh ethics um, might be in the modern day context. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your methodology here. How, how do you do, do this? Uh, and I think maybe we could focus on what you identify as the today's most pressing ethical issue, which is that of the environment. So, so how are you constructing a sick ethics in, in this context? Yeah. So the way I sort of rethought about sick ethics is, um, is, is to look at the limitations of the modernist discourse, um, the, the colonial discourse, uh, sink discourse, discourse, um, which ended, I think, think for to all intents and purposes in 1954 with the creation of uh, a formal code of conduct um, which is kind of like a go-to book on sick behavior and ethics um, especially when you're kind of formally initiated into into the sick uh, way of life um, the problem is that it's culturally restricted it's restricted uh, entirely to the Punjabi Indic sort of context of, of life. And it has much less relevance, I think. Um, it, it, it sort of constrains the concepts, the key concepts like hukam, for example, um, and, and many others, the concept of nam, etc. 
to a very sort of ethnic um, ethnic context. And I was trying to just push back on that and saying, you know, I'm I'm I regard myself as a diasporic Sikh. I'm, I'm both Westernized and Western. I'm Indian as well, uh, for whatever that means. I'm sort of in between this area, and so the kind of ethics that I need is uh, I, I need to interpret these concepts in in a in a much more fluid sort of way, uh, in a diasporic way. And thankfully, I think the frameworks within which uh, these concepts are composed um, by the Sikh gurus and actually also within modern Sikh philosophy as well allows you to create what I would call a kind of a diasporic uh, framework um, which means that uh, there is no kind of origin that ties you back necessarily uh, to a particular ethnic context so the ethics here you know th these concepts now sort of have um, they have wings. They can they can they can work in different sort of contexts, etc. So I was able to apply them very fluidly um, to a variety of contexts, and the environment was certainly one of them. Um, and and it, it's it's very obvious where Guru Nanak's thought is kind of attuned to that uh, as well. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's enough. Yeah, can you just say briefly in what sense his, his thought is attuned to the environment? I think that would be a nice thing to say a little bit about. Yeah, um, I think it's it's uh, pretty much, it, it's the interlinkage, the interconnectivity between uh, materiality and consciousness. There's no opposition between them, therefore the world is speaking to us as much as we're speaking to the world and possibly even more it's speaking to us so um, Guru Nanak has these beautiful passages in uh, hymns such as Japji Sarway talks about you know um, the mountains the, the grass the wind uh, singing to us and that singing is essentially a uh, uh, an allusion to Nam, and that Nam is the name of reality that connects everything, uh, not just in this world, but in many other worlds as well. And so it's a very expansive understanding, and um, yeah, the position of humans uh, becomes infinitesimally small in that sort of whole sort of backdrop. So we are almost kind of nothing there, and one has to really change one's way of thinking uh, completely. Um, and and that, that's, that's how I approach an ethics towards the environment, basically. Thank you. That's, that's uh, I think, a beautiful note to, to end on. We've taken up a lot of your time, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, what are you working on now, now that this book is, is out? Oh, yeah, thanks. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you as well. It's been very interesting. Um, so yeah, I'm working on two or three projects. I have um, a book that's in proofs at the moment. It's called Philosophical Reflections on Shabd. So the chapter on Shabd was uh, that I covered in um, in Sikh philosophy was it's it's very tightly argued, and I try to bring those concepts out 
in more detail in that particular book that's out in a few weeks. Uh, a much bigger project that I've been working on for a number of years uh, is Geophilosophical Encounters. Um, so the full title is Geophilosophical Encounters, uh, Diasporicity, uh, Decolonial Practice and Sick Thought. And that's where I'm really working with cross-cultural methodology that's relevant to my sort of lived experience, to the plane of consciousness of, of people who kind of live two or three cultures all at once. And for me, philosophy is kind of constructed from that impulse and that crossing of cultures. And it's very similar to what I think the Sikh Gurus, the, um, the kind of environment in which they grew up as well, which was, you know, complete hybridity of different cultures and learning how to mediate them. So those are two and the, a third project, which I've started, uh, it's a book project, it's called War Machines. And it's on the philosophy of violence and nonviolence in these, these texts, of course, that's one thing I haven't touched on at all in the, this particular book, um, which is the, the theme of violence and nonviolence. And it's what Sikhs are normally kind of associated with in that kind of cliched way as well. So I'm going to be talking about that. Great. Well, thanks again for your time, Marvin. I enjoyed speaking with you. And as always, we'll have information about your, your book up online for folks who are interested in checking it out. Thank you, Malcolm. It's a real pleasure.